There's no birth control method that's 100% effective. And natural cycles is about similarly effective to the pill. So it's 93% effective with typical use and 98% effective with perfect use, meaning that you actually use protection on the days that the abscess you might be fertile. I'm Dan Murray Serta, and this is Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. We talk with brilliant business people to give you insights and perspective that helps your growth. Today's guest is Alina Berglund, the co-founder and CEO of Natural Cycles, a hormone-free, non-intrusive method of managing birth control. The first app of its kind approved by regulators in the EU and the US, it predicts a woman's fertility using a thermometer that's linked to a smartphone app. And people love it. But how did they get their first users? How do you convince someone to try a new app which, if it goes wrong, leads to a pregnancy? Well, that's getting ahead of ourselves. Our story starts at CERN, where Alina was one of the physicists who worked on the discovery of the Higgs boson particle, which led to the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2013. I still miss it sometimes, especially my, my colleagues. Often I think uh, researchers have quite small groups, but in, in my experiment, the Atlas experiment, we were 3,000 people. Luckily, I have four other particle physicists with me on the natural cycles team now. So I, I still brought some of them with me, but not all the 3,000 of them. But it was amazing because it was so, it was really cool to look at all the data and really discover uh, a new particle or something. I think you know, it doesn't happen every day, <laughs> for sure not. So that was, that was an amazing, it's still the best thing that happened in my life, I think, when we found the Higgs boson. I mean, that is a very, very reasonable statement. What was it like discovering it? Was there like a moment? There was definitely a moment and a lot of hard work leading up to it. I'd done my PhD at CERN in um, uh, another topic than the Higgs particle, but still in particle physics. And then I switched to the team looking for the Higgs boson when I continued doing my research as a postdoc uh, after my PhD. And then uh, um, for more than a year leading up to the discovery, we, we were working really, really a lot. Like we had meetings most weekends. We had meetings during Christmas, during New Year's, every day. But it, it was so worth it in the end. And we were doing a so-called blind analysis, which meant that we weren't peeking to see if there was a Higgs boson or not. But we were like collecting the data, uh, making the analysis ready to then unveiling the part where we would see if there was a Higgs boson or not uh, until the very last moment when we were, everything was ready. So then we, I remember like that was in the summer of um, 2012 when we said like, okay, now we have enough data. We understand the analysis. We're ready to open this black box to see either if there is a Higgs boson or if there isn't one, and that's also very exciting because then you can say like the standard model of particle physics that predicted the Higgs boson was wrong and either way is very exciting. And a few of us, we were sitting in the CERN cafeteria just before the big meeting where we would, we would present the results and like, you know, looking at the graphs where we saw very clearly, well, there is a Higgs there. It's like so clear that, you know, in some sense it felt silly. It felt so obvious that of course it was there. It was always there. And then we, we stayed up almost all night at CERN to draft the paper already that first day. And I'll, I'll never forget the feeling when I was 
uh, biking home in the morning and it was the sun was already coming up after like the most tw exciting 24 hours of my life and then I, I completely forgot that I had a very early meeting the next morning so someone called me like at 8 a.m like why aren't you in the meeting and I was back then I was commuting by bike and it was rather far and I didn't have time to shower so I had to bike back to start and sit in the meeting again without showering but it didn't matter so much at the time. Can, can you actually explain to, I just realized, you know, we've got straight into the science, but obviously there might be listeners that aren't actually familiar with what the Higgs boson is or the size of that kind of discovery. Can you give us a, a Higgs boson for dummies summary? For sure. So um, particle physics is the study of like the most elementary particles of our universe. So like the electron, the photon, there are a bunch of them. And in the 60s, the so-called standard model of particle physics was developed and there all the particles were laid out in theory and Higgs boson, there was uh, one of the particles that was important because it gives mass to the other particles. So like the electron, for instance, interacts with the Higgs boson and hence has a mass. The photon, which is light, does not and hence it has no mass. So following that time one by one all the particles were discovered in the standard model except the Higgs boson which was kind of the last missing puzzle that hadn't been discovered yet so either we would discover it and say okay the standard model was correct or we would say the Higgs doesn't exist and therefore it was wrong we have to come up with a new model got it so really just like reaffirming our current understanding of physics essentially and molecular activity yeah, the standard mo model doesn't explain everything, though. So it doesn't explain about uh, dark matter and dark energy or the graviton. So there, there are still exciting things to do in physics. We're, we're not done. <laughs> and how do you celebrate winning the Nobel Prize? What's a typical, uh, you know, celebration? Well, to be fair, I didn't personally win the Nobel Prize, but the theoreticians that predicted the Higgs did. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how they celebrated, but I know Peter Higgs came to CERN just before when we just discovered it. So we all got to meet him. And our um, we were still very happy because our our experiment, um, Atlas and the other experiment, CMS, that also found the Higgs at the same time were mentioned in the Nobel Prize. So we did celebrate. We drank some fair share of champagne. Uh, <laughs> we brought this culture over to Natural Cycles. So we, we do drink champagne at Natural Cycles uh, sometimes now, too, when we have something to celebrate. Good. Okay, well, let's talk about Natural Cycles then. What was the spark that led to it? Or actually, just start with what is Natural Cycles, in your own words, and then take us through the spark that led to starting it. So Natural Cycles is a, an app plus a thermometer that measures women's temperature. And the algorithm behind the app then tells the woman if she's fertile or not uh, and gives a red day if she might be fertile and need to use protection if she wants to prevent pregnancy that day, or a green day if she's definitely not fertile and does not have to use protection. And you can also use it the other way around, so to plan a pregnancy. And Natural Cycles is uh, now the only app to be cleared um, by the FDA in the US and also in Europe as a, a medical device for contraception. It basically started from my husband's and my own need for a natural birth control method that's easy to use and effective so we uh, we knew we wanted to have kids in a few years and uh, i had been on the hormonal implant and it was time to uh, remove it and i, I didn't want to go from hormones to being pregnant i wanted to give my body a couple of years of break in between and i was looking for like what can i do in the meantime uh, i don't want to just use condoms and 
I was Googling around and then I discovered that, well, actually the body temperature changes throughout the menstrual cycle, something that has been uh, known for long and well-researched, but I had no idea about this. So I was like super excited, like, okay, I can measure my temperature and figure out when I'm fertile or not. Uh, and that's something women used to do by hand and apply quite simple rules, which maybe didn't make it the most effective uh, method of birth control. But I felt like with my understanding of data from particle physics, I can actually develop an algorithm that also learns cycle to cycle and applies more advanced statistical methods to say like, well, I'm definitely not fertile today. So that's kind of how it started. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I know there's been loads of challenges, obviously, in in starting a company like that. So what were the main challenges right at the beginning of natural cycles, like building the product or getting your first users? Well, I, I think I was lucky in the sense that I um, creating the algorithm is something I could do myself from my knowledge from CERN and also coding. So I, I'd never coded an app before, but I've you know coded for data analysis at CERN. So I, I learned how to code an app so I could build the first product basically myself. We didn't know anything. We were both researchers, though. My husband is also a physicist. We don't, didn't know anything about business. So he worked then, uh, when we quit physics, we, he worked one year as a management consultant to learn, <laughs> like, basically, what is a company? We never worked for one, so we don't know. I think the main challenges in the end, though, that came a bit later was uh, the regulatory part. Like, we were an app, and regulations are not necessarily written for apps. So it wasn't clear, are we a medical device 
or not, and which risk mm -hmm. class. So when we first launched in Sweden, we asked the regulators what we are, and we didn't really get a clear answer. But then we grew rather quickly, and it, it became clear that women are using this app as a contraception. And then the regulators came back and said, well, actually, you need to be regulated the same way as a condom, so a risk class to be medical device for contraception. And then it was hard to get there because you know, there are many things in the regulations that's not written for a product like ours. So it took a few years to, to get to that. What about like the getting your first users to trust you as something so important? How did you build up the, the trust and confidence for that? Because I can imagine a lot of doubt. Yeah, and, and we still face quite a bit of skepticism and doubt, um, especially in this field of of women's health and, and contraception, it, you know, it's very sensitive. Somehow though, we develop a product that women both want and need. There's so many women out there that try many different contraceptive methods and nothing fits them. So there was really a unmet need that our product filled. So, and I think with our science background, this also infused trust. It was harder of course in the beginning because we hadn't published yet our first clinical studies now we've published eight clinical studies, we're regulated. So we, we've really come a long way, but we still see like this reaction of, but can you trust an app for that? Okay, so yeah, I understand um, difficult to get the trust from first users. You mentioned that your husband was working as a management consultant to get experience in business. Was that, you know, trying to be a breadwinner at the same time as learning about business at the same time? What was that kind of process like? Was that happening before, after, during? I'm just trying to get a sense of what really happened, like starting a business, because what I'm curious about, you know, a husband and wife team different to the uh, usual background of entrepreneurs and also like the usual concerns of how are we going to pay for our food? <laughs> so you've got all these normal things. I just want to del delve into how you approach these problems. Yeah, we both quit our jobs in physics at the beginning of 2013. I then basically had no salary and worked from home, uh, which is normal for everyone now, <laughs> but I did it then to develop the algorithm and the app uh, myself. And he took this job at IBM as a management consultant and we could live on his salary alone. And at the same time he would learn about business. And he did so for one year in Switzerland. And then we moved pretty exactly one year later to Sweden because Sweden was supposed to be our first proof of concept market. And around the same time, we also managed to close um, a small round of funding from um, mainly Swiss business angels that then allowed us to both work full time at the same time and take small salaries out from the company to basically buy food. And also Half a year later, we started hiring our first employees after we started getting some traction in Sweden. So where were you all working? So, you know, I guess your, your first employees essentially working with a married couple. Was that funny for them? Are they still around? Did you ever like work out what that kind of experience was like? Is it you like a mediator as well? Or That, of course, was definitely a challenge to hire that first person. I think the way um, it worked out well was because we, we basically hired two people almost at the same time. I think one started a week before the other. So we went basically from two to four, which I think helped because otherwise, you know, if you're a new person and then you have a married couple that know each other insanely well, it's not as easy. 
but since we started going from two to four, it worked out well. Okay, that makes sense. I'm imagining it's probably quite difficult to beta test a product like this in general because the stakes are pretty high, right? Like you get it wrong, unwanted pregnancies. It's not it's not a small uh, consequence. So how how did you approach the problem of that? Yeah, that's a good point, and that's why we were never really in beta, so to speak, and that's why we we started approaching it from the algorithm side, and we managed to, on one hand, we managed to kind of recruit. 20 to 30 women that were like friends or friends of friends that were they every day measure their temperature, put it in a spreadsheet. And um, I ran the algorithm and then discuss with them like and see like how how they on a day-to-day basis approached it. Uh, but they didn't rely solely on this as a contraception at that time. Uh, and then I also found a lot, a lot, like hundreds of thousands of published cycles with like temperature indicating if you know. There was a pregnancy, so one could see what happened with temperature and or miscarriage, and like all these edge cases. So I, I started training the algorithm on that data. So then, when we went live, we were very confident that the algorithm was solid. Of course, now we have also much more external proof of it because we published so many clinical studies that, that we didn't have at the time. But internally, we were we were confident already then. But unwanted pregnancies is still something that you know, always comes up anyway, because mm. there's no birth control method that's 100% effective. And natural cycles is about similarly effective to the pill. So it's 93% effective with typical use and 98% effective with perfect use, meaning that you actually uh, use protection on the days that the app says that it's, you might be fertile. Yeah, amazing. I mean, I'm guessing, I guess what I'm going around in my head is what kind of feedback have you had when it's not effective? And I'm thinking about this from a, an entrepreneur's point of view, we get customer feedback, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I imagine the type that I get is a lot less emotional than the type that you might get. Yeah, that's definitely the, the toughest part of, you know, building a product that's used as a contraceptive. Most of our pregnancies is due to the the users not using protection on that red day. So then uh, oftentimes they're kind of aware that they took a risk and also our users are on average 30 years old. So we can clearly see in our data that the closer they come to thinking that, well, I'm soon ready for pregnancy. Actually, the the more likely it is that they actually have a a unplanned pregnancy with the app. But then um, we also have that small, small fraction where the app um, or the algorithm gives it a wrong green day. And that's basically the effectiveness of that is 99.5%. So it's, it's very rare, but it does happen. And the more users we have, the more it's going to happen. So that's tough. And, and we really try to be there for the user to offer, answer her questions, offer any support she might want and help guide her. And at the same time, you know, explain what happened and also know ourselves that even though that's horrible for that user. Overall, we know that we have a net effect of actually reducing unwanted pregnancy on the larger scale because we know that our users come from mainly similarly effective or less effective methods. So if natural cycles hadn't been around, there would be more unwanted pregnancies overall. And we published a study showing that. And what 
I mean, if you don't mind sharing, like, what was it like the first time someone told you that it hadn't worked or the first unwanted pregnancy, so to speak, where someone is attributing that blame to you? Yeah, I remember it very clearly. Uh, I was, uh, uh, that, that was back in the days where I actually answered all the support emails myself, personally. And I was at a conference at the time, and I was um, also alone at that conference. And I like had a booth, and I was supposed to go on stage. And then this email came in more or less at the same time. And I was like, you know, my heart sank because often these emails are also, and the first one was as well, quite emotional and personal. And I was really feeling for that woman. I really wanted to be able to give her as much support as I can. But it was a not the jo most joyful day at Natural Cycles, for sure. How did you personally deal with it? Did you have to go on stage and, you know pretend it hadn't happened and then get back and suddenly like what well, I guess what were your emotions like during that period yeah I think I, I felt quite alone also because you know I was in a different country at the giant conference on my own answering all these questions on my own I answered her right away and then indeed I had to get up on stage and put on a smile and keep pitching natural cycles because I, I knew in the end that you know yeah, that this is come. bound to happen and yeah. the product is still I had full confidence in the product. Take me through your biggest mistake in the early days. Was there anything notable? Well, we, we of course made a lot of mistakes, but if I can think about it with 2020 hindsight, at least on the early ones, I don't necessarily regret because one way or another it led us to where we are like for instance we market ourselves as a contraceptive before we had the clearance which you know is not allowed but hadn't we done that we wouldn't have gotten the clearance it was like a catch-22 yeah. so i don't necessarily regret it if i could change something it would be more actually what happened like more a couple of years ago when we raised our series B, which was $30 million. So quite significant amount of funding. I felt up to then I wouldn't have changed anything really. Um, these no big things, but then I think we did this classic mistake that many people do that you start over hiring, you know, you, you hire very quickly because you got this bag of cash. And at the same time, we, we got into kind of a, a PR crisis around unwanted pregnancy. So we were not, growing anymore and we didn't I think we should have just paused everything dealt with that crisis and then kept hiring etc again but it, we tried to do everything at the same time like launch three new markets deal with the PR crisis and we doubled the size of the company in one year and that didn't go very well we didn't handle all these things at the same time it, it was like a recipe for a disaster I would say looking back now and in terms of like launching in Sweden, like how was that as a decision? Like was there, I mean, others, obviously you're from Sweden, so that's why, but was that a good decision? Was there any reason other than you being from there? Do you think it was the right call? It, being from there was not necessarily the decision why. We actually, we made a spreadsheet with like maybe 20 potential markets and we filled out a lot of different parameters, like what contraceptive methods do they use today? Do they use smartphones? Do they use credit cards? Um, all kinds of things. And then when we waited and Japan and Sweden came on top for very different reasons. Japan is because people there, um, it used to be illegal to use hormonal contraception. So a lot of people just use condoms or other 
less effective fertility awareness methods. Uh, for Sweden, it was because many people have smartphones. It was um, now everyone has smartphones, but back in the days, this was a, a big deal and people were quite tech savvy and also women have quite a lot of decision power. And then we thought, okay, Japan versus Sweden, it's probably easier to start with Sweden because it's a market we know because I'm from there, it's a, quite a small market. I would say that was a good decision. Um, I think it's, you know, a small friendly market like that is, is good to start with. Yeah, what, like, I guess one of the questions I really was quite excited to learn from you um, or rather ask you and then learn from you about is the transition from science to startups. What I'm particularly interested in is, you know, the cultural dynamics, the cultural differences, like how you find yourself emotionally going into a completely different industry where there might be correlations as well. And then also, you know, how you do things like pitching for investment, for example, that, you know, are difficult skills for anyone, let alone scientists. So, yeah, a few questions in that. Some things are, are quite similar now uh, at natural cycles compared to before in particle physics. Part of it is like the, the data analysis. Um, we actually still do research and have a, you know, a research team. We still publish papers. It's just a different topic. Uh, so that part is very similar. I think also we brought along quite a bit of culture from research into natural cycles that you know, we're very data driven. I think we are quite good at you know, testing and learning and, and course correcting and iterating. And, and we're quite resilient. We don't give up, which I think you have to be as a scientist. You cannot just give up at first failure. Some things are very different though. And I, I remember the very first time I, I pitched Natural Cycles to an investor, which was basically just an algorithm at that time. I hadn't built the app yet. I think in, in science, we're often quite humble because there's always a smarter scientist out there and, you know, Usually, you, you learn to present your data in a very objective, humble way. You never exaggerate any result or so. No. I was doing the same when I explained the algorithm and how I uh, come about it. And the investor asked, so can others do a similar algorithm? And I was thinking of all my, basically all my friends were particle physicists and had the same background as me. So I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> And then he asked, like, well, how, how long have you been working on this algorithm? Like a day or a week? And then I realized I, I completely undersold it because I, I'd worked on it for months. And, you know, this was and still is the state of the art. There's no other algorithm coming close to it. Then I realized that, okay, I have to adjust my, my language because, you know, we're not speaking the same language. I'm still speaking the science language. I have to be proud of natural cycles or what I've achieved when I pitch it to investors. Yeah, I love that. And I guess, you know, in terms of the like the confidence, I suppose, you know, you, like you say, you're supposed to really show humility when you're doing research, but it's all hubris in startup fundraising, right? It's all confidence. It's all arrogance. It's all storytelling. Did you get coaching? Like, was this, or did you read books? Like, how did you approach doing that? No, I would say more learning by doing. And I think there, it helps that we're two and we're quite yeah. different personalities. So it's mainly um, my co-founder and husband that initially pitches to investors. And then he brings me in a little bit later down the line when they're, they're more interested. And I don't know, this, this sounds um, cliche, but he's Austrian. And I think uh, often they're a little bit better at, you know, being a bit more proud of themselves and not, you know, the Swedes are a little bit more humble, if I can generalize like that. And 
I think he quicker adapted to this other language and you know actually selling natural cycles really well. I mean, I think he's still better at doing it than I am better at coming in later and explain the science, the product, um, why we're doing this for the women. So I think having the two of us there helps a lot. How have you um, found the process of building your leadership team and how successful do you think you've been? Because this is such a big challenge for people on, on a growth journey. It has been a challenge. Um, I think right now we're, we're actually in a really good place where we're a, quite a, a small, lean, but very effective team. So we're about 55 people and we're growing really fast now and producing amazing results. And we're also quite a happy team. We call ourselves a team of teams because, you know, we have quite a few smaller autonomous teams and then they are very good at aligning with each other cross-functionally, but it was really not always like that. And I think also in that period where we overhired and we very quickly went from 40 to a hundred people, we made a lot of mistakes. And now in looking back at it, I think I should have listened to my gut feeling more because I think my gut was telling me like, this doesn't feel right. Something feels difficult. This is, you know, it feels heavy. And now when things are actually going well, and the, I think the, we have great leaders at Natural Cycles, it feels easy. It doesn't feel hard anymore. So I think I should have listened to my gut and changed things faster rather than just trying to fight that wind against me. Do you think it's hard to follow your gut and feel that feeling if you're a scientist? I found that at least the first years of natural cycles, I was very good at following my gut. Uh, I usually say like 80% data, 20% gut feeling. And that, that took me quite far. I don't know what happened to make me change uh, in the middle there. Our investors once said like, it's like you're, you're running the company for your mothers. In the end, I think we started running the company for the investors. Mm, and it, maybe it that was the problem uh, and not so much taking the decision that we felt was right, or rather taking the decisions that we were supposed to take. Very common story for guests, sadly. But the important thing is you, you corrected your course at the right time. The thing that strikes me about what you do is it's very easy to assume that, you know, my perspective as a British man is the same as you, as a Swedish woman, is the same as you know, someone in Colombia about fertility. And I'd love to know, and I mean, for starters, I know that's not true. So I'd love to know what cultural challenges you found introducing your product to certain regions, or more importantly, where you've kind of been surprised. Yeah, no, it is quite different um, country by country. Um, even just small things, like for instance, I, I had assumed that Sweden would be a good market for natural cycles because women empowerment is quite advanced. But we realized that in Sweden, actually, uh, men are not used to wearing condoms. So it was an issue that on the red days when the woman is fertile, usually the man has to wear a condom as protection. So we see it kind of as a compromise between the man and the woman. But in Sweden, men, they are more reluctant to do that because they're very used to the woman being on the pill. So they, they feel like, why, why should I suddenly have to do something? That's not something I expected to encounter, but we heard a lot from the women, like, how can I get my partner to also contribute here? 
then another part of it is also, as you say, like the view on abortion is very different and also the accessibility. So like for instance, Brazil, where it's illegal, we actually have our, our best uh, rate of, of unwanted pregnancy, basically the fewest unwanted pregnancy. While in, in Scandinavia, where it's quite accessible, we have the highest. So it's, it's really a cultural thing. And, and UK and US, which, which are our biggest markets, they're somewhere in between Sweden and Brazil. Also makes sense in some way. Yeah, it does. Okay, so wrapping up now, you've obviously learned loads of lessons on your journey. Would you wish you'd known right at the beginning that you could have taken through to this moment? Well, I, I think I, I for sure underestimated the difficulty of, of building a product and also getting it to users and for sure the regulatory pathway, how complicated that would be. But I'm kind of happy I wasn't aware of that because I'm not sure if I would have dared to you know, quit my job and just blindly embark on this journey if I had known all the hurdles up front. Um, so in some sense, I, I'm quite happy that I started off as a rather naive scientist that assumed like if I just build this product, it will sell itself because you know it's needed, which I of course now know it's not the case, but I'm kind of happy that I, I was a bit more naive in the beginning. And I'm guessing as a scientist, you started off quite data focused, but you've had to, I presume, learn quite a lot about psychology and emotional um, opinions. So what have you learned there? Well, for sure. Um, indeed, I, for a long time, I assumed like if the product works, if the science is on our side, that, that's good enough. But I, I've learned now that actually communication like in education also around um, contraception and women's health is equally important. Like explaining to users what is the risk of pregnancy with natural cycles compared to other methods is really important. And also in general, communication, education words are equally important to numbers, I realized in later years. What is your next big target? What are you, the next big thing you're, you're targeting for natural cycles, the next milestone to knock it out the park? So right now we're very excited about um, bringing wearable contraception to the market. So earlier, um, like in September, half a year ago in 2020, uh, we submitted a 510K to the FDA and also to European regulatory authorities that instead of measuring your temperature in the mouth in the morning, you can use a wearable that measures temperature and heart rate on your skin and showing that it's actually um, performs equally well. So this is not something that's on the market yet uh, because we're awaiting regulatory approval, but I think something that will bring uh, you know, natural cycles to, to more users and it will be also easier to use for many women out there. So that's very exciting. Amazing. Congratulations on all your success. It's been great to see and so much more from you to come. So looking forward to you changing the way that we uh, choose to live our lives and obviously bring new life into the world. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. We're going to be taking a break for a few weeks whilst we line up more amazing guests with even more inspiring stories. So make sure you're subscribed if you want to be the first to know when they arrive. In the meantime, you can catch me on my other show, The Brain Care Podcast, where we are talking to experts, scientists, and the occasional, you know, people like Stephen Fry, about how you can improve your mental health and performance. And by the way, catch me on Clubhouse pretty much every day too, at Dan Murray Serta. See you there. If you enjoyed the show, then please get your phone out and send a link to a friend who you think needs to hear it. And if you really loved it, then why not leave us a review too? You can now also find me on Clubhouse at Dan Murray Serta. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.